Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Take your Bible and join me tonight in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, and we're going to give our attention to verses 1 through 23, the deadly lure of legalism. I have a profile tonight I want to share with you before we get into the text that is going to introduce you to a prospective church member of Wake Crossroads Baptist Church, and I'm quite sure that most of you will be thrilled to have this individual join our church. Uh, here's what he has promised. Uh, He will attend every service we have, including Wednesday nights and special events. Uh, He will go on mission trips with a passion to convert the heathen. Uh, He will tithe minimally, sing in the choir, read the Bible daily, and memorize massive portions of Scripture. In fact, he'll probably know more Scripture uh, by way of memory than anybody else who is a part of this church. Uh, He'll be happy to pray when we gather for corporate worship. And he is thoroughly orthodox in his theology. He is an inerrantist. He believes all of the Bible is the Word of God. He's a monotheist. Uh, he believes in heaven. He believes in hell. Uh, he never gets drunk. He's not addicted to pornography. He never uses profanity. Uh, he's a family man. He loves his country fervently. He weeps on the 4th of July. He always votes the right way. Uh, his reputation in the community is stellar. And people who know him admire him for all that he does. In fact, if any man ever earned the right to go to heaven, it is this man and his religion is certainly something to admire. Well, if you have been a student of the Bible for very long, you know that I've just introduced you uh, to a 21st century Pharisee. And you'd understand that in the first century, when the word Pharisee was mentioned, uh, those persons were not scorned. Uh, They were not looked down upon. They were not thought uh, poorly of. They were admired. Uh, They were model citizens. They were the paragon of piety and religion. But unfortunately, so many of them, like today, had what Paul calls in Romans chapter 10 and verse 2, a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. In other words, we can have a passion for God, and yet not know God. We can be captured and enslaved and deceived by this deadly thing called legalism. And unfortunately, those of us who've been raised in the church in this day and age are the most susceptible to this deception. In other words, our pride in religious ritual church practices, <coughs> excuse me, our cultural traditions can blind us, one, to our great sinfulness, and secondly, the great Savior who alone can rescue us. <coughs> excuse me, I got something in my throat tonight. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, and this is very convicting to me personally, there's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone uh, in the world, uh, which everyone <coughs> in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else. 
and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, and even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice, and at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The bias I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit. Pride, it leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And, of course, the Bible has a lot to say about this issue of pride. Thank you. And a lack of humility that we should all exhibit. I've listed for you tonight in your notes a number of those scriptures, but let me read them for you. Psalm 31, verse 23. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Proverbs 11, 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. Proverbs 15:25 The Lord tears down the house of the proud. Proverbs 16:18 Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 18:12 Before destruction a man's heart is haughty but humility comes before honor. Proverbs 29:23 Once pride will bring him low but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Isaiah 13, 11, I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant. Jeremiah 49, 16, the honor, the horror you inspire has deceived you. And the pride of your heart, you who live in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill, though you make your nest as high as the eagles, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. Luke 14:11 For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And James 4:6 which you also find by the way in Proverbs 3:34 and 1 Peter 5:5 5, 5. in other words three times in the Bible you find this verse God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. In other words, the Bible is replete with God's condemnation of pride. And a good question to ask is, why does he oppose pride so strongly? And the answer is because human pride always stands in opposition to God. It thinks more of itself than it should. It thinks more of itself than God does. And so amazingly, such pride is always lurking around us. And sometimes we even find it located In this thing called religion and this thing called, as Jesus will speak of it, the traditions of men. So what is it that we need to understand tonight from these 23 verses concerning the deadly lures of legalism? Well, three observations. Number one, legalists honor God with their lips, resulting in false worship. Look at verse 1 through verse 8. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the traditions of the elders. That word, by the way, traditions will occur five times in this passage. 
Verse 4, when they come from the marketplace, do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. The Pharisees and the scribes, those who teach the law, the Torah, have come again to see Jesus. We saw back in chapter 3 and verse 22, they came to investigate this uh, rabbi, uh, this teacher from Nazareth. And so they've come again because the popularity of Jesus continues to grow and explode and they cannot ignore him. But we know by now that when the religious leaders show up, uh, they're to no good. Uh, they come with an agenda. Uh, they come with a goal to bring him down. And unfortunately, if we're not careful, we can have the same mindset as the Pharisees. You see, they already had their minds made up about who Jesus was. They were not really interested in discovering or learning anything new or anything more. Their minds were made up. Uh, they had formed their opinion of who this person is, what kind of person he was. In other words, as I often see too many times in life, my mind is made up. Don't try to confuse me with the facts. Does it matter that he is healing? Does it matter that he's casting out demons? If you remember, they accused him back in chapter 3 of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And so they have their mind made up. They know who he is. Furthermore, if you can't get him, then go after his friends. Go after his associates. Uh, guilt by association is always a very effective tactic in taking someone down. And this is exactly the strategy they're going to use as we see in these verses that we've just read. Now, note two aspects about the fact that they honor God with their lips that results in false worship. Number one, they love to compare themselves to others. Verse one says the Pharisees gathered to him. Literally in the Greek, it says they surrounded him with some of the scribes who'd come down from Jerusalem. And they looked for an opportunity to accuse him. And so it says in verse 2, they saw that uh, his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, if there happens to be here tonight some of you hand uh, sanitizing freaks who've always got that little bottle in your pocket and everywhere you go, you've got that thing ready. And uh, you pop it out at every turn and you wash your hands and then turn and there you are again. I, I've got some dear friends like that who I, I swear they go through a big bottle a day uh, because they're always uh, germaphobes, just terrified that somehow something is going to slip in and get them. Well, that's not what this is about at all. Now, this has nothing to do with hygiene. It has everything to do with their rituals of cleansing. And so they are concerned not about having clean hands hygienically. They're concerned about honoring, as it says there in verse 2, the traditions of the elders. Now, if you and I were not a Jew, which, of course, Mark is writing to a Roman audience. 
you might find this whole discussion a little bit bizarre. And so what you basically have in verse 3 and verse 4 is his parenthetical uh, explanation. In fact, even in my Bible, verse 3 and verse 4 are in parenthesis to basically tell us Mark's going to explain to his Roman audience kind of what's going on. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the Scriptures, no, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace where they may have encountered a filthy dog Gentile, they absolutely must wash before they eat. And verse 4, there are many other traditions that they observe as well. They wash cups, they wash pots, they wash copper vessels, and they wash the dining couches as well. In other words, you might have touched something unclean, so you better wash. You might have touched a, a Gentile person, so you better wash. Cups must be washed, pots must be washed, and on and on we go. And if you disregard the traditions of the elders, the traditions of these legal teachers of the law, then you sin. In other words, religious ritual and legalistic traditions have taken over their lives, enslaving them rather than setting them free. In other words, they thought that having all these rules and regulations would make life easier. But in actuality, it only made life more terrible and brought them into a self-imposed bondage. And they were even blind to the very fact that this was indeed the case. In fact, verse 5, they now moved to their accusation. And they said to him, that is Jesus, why do your disciples not walk? It means to live. Why do they not live according to the traditions of the elders, but they do eat with defiled hands? Now, note something very interesting and very important. Can they provide a biblical, scriptural argument for their behavior? No. No, even they admit that we are going according to the tradition of the elders. No, we can't provide a biblical warrant for what we do, but why would we let that get in the way? Why would we let the Bible get in the way of our traditions? And so they are convinced that what they're doing should be followed by everyone else. And if they don't, then you are guilty of sin. Now, let me be fair before I move on with this um, uh, execution uh, of the Pharisees and the scribes. I think initially what they did had a good intent. In other words, when they came up with these rules and regulations, these traditions of the elders, we know from historical study, their goal is actually to protect the law and to ensure that they would obey it. However, as we're going to see in just a moment, true religion is never a matter of external behavior. Never. It's always a matter of the heart. And so they had these rules and regulations that they thought were going to help them be clean before God, but they completely missed the fact that the true source of their impurity is not on the outside. It is on the inside. The same way we'll all remember, it's not a matter of the hands. It's a matter of the heart. And by the way, it's pretty hard to compare hearts, isn't it? That's something only God can do. 
But we can come up with a list of religious rules and regulations and we can check them off. And whoever checks off the most boxes obviously must be the most spiritual person. Furthermore, it's very interesting. If you go back to Exodus chapter 30 and verse 14, you discover that there was a particular group that was required to wash. And that was the priest before they would enter the tabernacle. And so now you got the Pharisees even outdoing the priest according to the clear teachings of the Bible. And so the Pharisees, like all Pharisees, like to compare themselves to others. They're comparing themselves to the disciples of Jesus. And clearly... They are far more spiritual and far more godly because they wash their hands and they wash their utensils before they eat their meal. They love to compare themselves to others. Secondly, they actually played the hypocrite with a distant heart. One of the things we learn from studying the gospel is that Jesus does not hesitate to call out the hypocrites. And so in verse 6, he says to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you Hypocrites, And he will quote Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13. Interestingly, he does not get into a debate with them about the washing issue. No, he jumps completely over that and begins to address, first of all, the issue of true spiritual authority. In other words, he asked the Pharisees and he would ask us tonight, on what basis do you live your life? On what basis do you make your decisions? Is it the Scriptures? Or is it the Scriptures plus tradition? Or ultimately, do you make your decisions based upon God's Word or the man-made traditions? How do you think? How do you live your life? And he just comes right out and calls them hypocrites, masqueraders, which, by the way, this is the only time in Mark's gospel that he uses that word. And once more, it brings me great conviction because he's talking to the, to the scholars. He's talking to the PhDs and the THDs who teach religion in the seminaries and in the churches. He's talking to religious leaders. And he says, you're hypocrites. You're actors. You're not real. You're pretenders. Yes, you honor God with your lips, But he says there in verse 6, quoting Isaiah, your heart is far from me. In other words, it's all words and show. Verse 7 drives the nail into the coffin, does it not? In vain, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, eventually he says, even your worship is something that I refuse. You teach as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave or abandon the commandments of God and hold traditions of man. Verse 8, you've left. you moved on from the commandments of God, and rather you hold tightly to the traditions of men. Ultimately, your authority is Scripture plus tradition. But if there ever comes a conflict between Scripture and tradition, then tradition will win out and Scripture will be kicked to the curb. It's something you acknowledge only in passing. If it is to be considered at all, it comes in second place to the traditions of men. You say, well, who does that? Churches all over America do that. I've been in churches, tragically, where when there was a business meeting and there was a conflict, we didn't bring out the Scriptures We brought out the church constitution. We brought out the bylaws. If 
fact, I was just recently at a church where a staff evangelist has been appointed, and uh, somebody dug out the, the, the bylaws and constitution somewhere and came to the pastor and said, oh, by the way, unless he is a member of this church, which he intends to join, but unless he's a member of this church, you can't appoint him to that. Now, I'm not saying that he ought to be a staff evangelist if he's not on the church staff. But I think it's interesting that they didn't look for Scripture. They looked for the Constitution. They looked for the bylaws. Furthermore, when it comes to our religious practices, I've watched churches have Donnybrooks over the name of the church, the times we meet, suit or no suit, choir or no choir, public invitation, no invitation, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And all those things I just mentioned there are worthwhile issues to talk about but i got news for you. The Bible doesn't address any of them. So if you come to a particular position, at least recognize you're coming on some basis other than the clear teachings of the Bible. Again, lists are easy to check off. The status of our heart is altogether different. So I ask this question before I move on. When you and I live our Christian life, are we text-driven or are we tra- tradition-driven? The Bible says legalists honor God with their lips, resulting in false worship. Number two, legalists make void the word of God, resulting in spiritual disobedience. Verse 9, and Jesus continues, he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your traditions. And he gives an example. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, dedicated or given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and many such things you do. Now, let me be clear before I move on. I don't think all traditions are bad. Some traditions are good. That's why they become traditions. But it is possible to take a good thing, turn it into a God thing, and thereby make it a bad thing. And when you take a tradition, whatever it may be, and you place it on the same level as the Bible, then it becomes a bad thing. It really becomes what I call a Bible plus religion, where in actuality your life is geared and guided and directed, not so much by the Bible, but as it is by the traditions that you have come to adopt as equal in authority to the Bible. And Jesus says in verse 13, when you do that, you nullify the truth of the Bible. You nullify its power in your life. You make it void. Now, Jesus continues his argument. And he is again going to put it right in front of the Pharisees and they'll have no way to respond to it. He says, here's what's happening as you make void the word of God resulting in spiritual disobedience. First of all, you're rejecting the commandments of God and establishing your own. Again, verse 9, he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. He said in verse 8, you have left the commandments of God in order to establish your Traditions. A.T. Robertson, the great scholar at Southern Seminary, probably the greatest Greek scholar who ever lived, said, you cannot ignore, quote, the strong contrast here between the commandment of God and the traditions of men. 
You see, they think that they are establishing the commandments of God. They think they are protecting the commandments of God. But in actuality, they are rejecting God's commandments. And in the process, they're establishing their own traditions as if they were the word of God. In other words, they set aside what God has clearly revealed. And in its place, they put as their authority man-made-up traditions. And brothers and sisters, that's just insane spiritually. It's ludicrous spiritually. It's suicidal spiritually. No man-made rules and regulations become the object of obedience while God's commandments get set aside, left behind, and kicked to the curb. Again, we don't need the Bible. We've got our Constitution. We don't need the Bible. We've got our bylaws. They have the final word in our church. But Warren Wiersbe, that wonderful Bible teacher at Moody Bible Church for many years, said it so well, quote, We must constantly beware, lest tradition take the place of truth. It does us good to examine our church traditions in the light of God's Word and be courageous enough to make changes. Again, even in our own personal lives, how often is it that we foolishly push away the only reliable trustworthy and infallible source we have, the Word of God, it is an act of sheer foolishness. Have you noticed, by the way, as we're working our way through this passage, the sad progression unfolding before our eyes? Look at it. It's in your notes. Number one, they teach the commandments of men, not the Word of God, verse 7. Secondly, they leave the commandments of God, verse 8. Thirdly, they reject the commandments of God, verse 9. Fourthly, they make void the commandments of God's Word, verse 13. And again, the tragedy in all this is they don't see it. They don't see their own blindness. They don't see their own hypocrisy. And again, it's so easy to see hypocrisy in others. We're experts at seeing it in others. But we're grade schoolers and preschoolers when it comes to seeing it in ourselves. And so we note, first of all, they reject the commandments of God and establish their own. But secondly, and this is, I think, even worse, they manipulate God's word to their own advantage. Jesus gives his own example, and it will settle the issue. It will not please the religious elites, no doubt. He goes to the scriptures, as you would expect, and in particular to the writings of Moses, as he notes there in verse uh, 9 and verse 10. And what he does is he points out that God has a clear, unequivocal standard for how children are to relate to their parents. So he, first of all, goes to the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment, found both in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, and Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 16, where the Bible simply says, Honor your father and mother. All right, that's a clear command of Scripture. Then he points out in Exodus 21, 17 and Leviticus 29, whoever reviles, the NIV and the New King James uses the word curses, father or mother, they must surely die. And so the principle is very clear. God calls children to honor, to respect, and to care for their parents. All right, seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? But... The Pharisees had a loophole. They, they came up with a theological method that allowed them to circumvent and get around this clear command of God. Jesus tells us what happens there in verse 11. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, 
then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. And you make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. Point is this. The word Corbin literally means a gift dedicated to God. And according to Numbers chapter 30 and verse 2, you make a vow, you've got to live by it. So what they would say is, you know, I've got this money, I've got these resources that I could have helped mom and dad out with, but I've made a vow to God that it's going to go to the temple. It's going to go to the synagogue. It's going to basically support us. And so as a result of that, he says, you now feel that it's okay to dish your parents, neglect their needs. Uh, to treat them as if they did not matter. And in the process, you feel good about it. I'm just being super spiritual because I dedicated what I have to the service of the Lord. Now, here's Jesus' argument. Where do you find that in the Bible? Answer, nowhere. Do you find making vows? Yes. Do you find making vows to give something to God, therefore allowing you to neglect your parents? No. No. And you've allowed your traditions to actually lead you to a blatant disobedience and disobeying of God's clear command. Jesus in essence would say, what kind of theological logic is that? And so he says there in verse 13, this kind of reasoning first makes void the word of God. You've emptied it of its power. Secondly, you've set up man-made traditions over God's commands. And thirdly, you now open the door for many more such actions that reveals the hardness of your hearts, the hypocrisy of your worship, the disobedience of your actions, and you do all this in the name of religion. These aren't atheists. These aren't secularists. These are pious monotheists who believe the Bible to be the Word of God in theory, but not in practice. And again, I wish I could say I'm immune to this, but I know that I'm not. I wish I could say that churches I've been a part of were immune to this, but no, they're not. And again, I can't tell you how many times I've had students come to me who said, you know, we had a real rough uh, business conference last Wednesday. I had a real rough meeting with the deacons last Sunday. And they will then, as we begin to talk about it, they would say, well, you know, I'll give you one example. I had a young man that got fired from his church in uh, outside of Dallas, Texas. Uh, unfortunately, it was a family chapel, which means everybody was related to everybody was related to everybody. And one of their deacons was living with a woman with whom he was not married in open, blatant adultery. But his uh, family was the founder of the church. And his father was the chairman of the deacons of the church. And they all knew about this. And so he tries to bring to the table the scandal of this, the offense to the gospel of this, goes to the Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 18, which gives clear guidelines for dealing with someone who's living in public, serious, unrepentant sin. And the chairman said, don't open that Bible. We know what we believe here. And basically just kicked the Bible out of the room. And eventually kicked the pastor out of the church because he dared to say Scripture makes it clear what we must do in this area. Now, the fact of the matter is our hearts are idol factories. And nowhere are they more happy often than in the traditions of religious people. No, truth should always concern us. But I may be as guilty as the Pharisees if I'm not careful of putting the traditions of Danny Aiken 
in the place of the clear teachings of the Bible. That leads us to our third section. Legalists are often confused concerning the source of defilement, which results in a lack of true understanding. This is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. It is so insightful, it basically turns our typical thinking of religion on its head. Basically, it says just this section alone. Hinduism is wrong. Buddhism is wrong. Judaism is wrong. Islam is wrong. You say, why? Because all those religions are matters of what you do. This is going to tell us, no, religion is really a matter of who you are. You see, the fruit of sin has its root in every human heart. Say it another way. Every human heart has the root of every human sin in it. You say, oh, no, there's some sins that I could never commit. Don't be so arrogant and foolish and stupid as to say that. You're capable of anything a sinful heart is capable of. And so am I. No. You see, it's nice and it's possible to look nice on the outside while being dead on the inside. And again, coming back to their concern for contamination, the most deadly contamination is not what I touch. No, the most deadly contamination is what I think. That's why Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So what does Jesus say to us? Number one, defilement really has its root on the inside. Verse 14 He called the people to him again. Note, he calls all of them to him. And he says, hear me, an imperative word of command, all of you, and understand another imperative. So all of you hear me, and all of you understand. And then what he does is he tells a very simple, short parable. Verse 15, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the thing that comes out of a person, that is what will defile him. All right. Then in verse 17, he moves into the house. The people leave and the disciples come up and they say, Lord, um, we didn't get it. You told another little story that we can't figure out. And so help us out and explain to us. The, the little parable that you just told. And once more, and it's been back in chapter 6, it'll be again in chapter 8, Jesus kind of dresses them down. He says, uh, are you, verse 18, also without understanding? And so basically he again chides them for their inability to comprehend a simple, basic truth. And so what he does is after chasing them, he explains it to them. And I do agree that verses 18 through 20 are three of the most important verses in all the Bible. Bottom line, defilement, impurity is not external. Defilement, impurity is internal. Verse 18, and he said to them, Are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach, and it is expelled? And parenthetically, I'll come back to this. He declared all foods clean. And he said to them, what comes out of a person, that is what defiles him. Jesus tries to help them understand very clearly that the issue of right relationship with God has very little to do. In fact, it has really nothing to do with what you do out here. It has to do with who you are in here. In other words, defilement is not gastrointestinal, verse 19, it's cardial. It is a matter of not the stomach, 
It is a matter of the heart. It's not what goes in that will defile you, but what will come out. And again, these words in that day, these words in this day are spiritually shocking. They're actually revolutionary. The real issues of religion and spiritual life, they're internal, not external. The focus should be on the inside, not the outside. Sin always proceeds, has its genesis from within. Food ends up in the stomach and then is expelled. But sin begins in the heart. You eat food, you digest in the stomach, you expel it. Actually, verse 19 in the Greek text says it goes out into the drain. It goes out into the latrine, all right? But sin, it doesn't do that. No, it remains in the heart. As we're about to see in just a moment, it produces all manner of defilement and death. Bottom line, our problem is not what we do. Our problem is who we are. Real filth, real impurity, defilement, it's inside and unseen. It's there, but don't miss what Jesus says. Eventually it will show itself. Eventually it will work its way out, as he will make clear in verse 21 through verse 23. Now, I have to make a quick comment. We'll move on. It says there in verse 19, parenthetical, I think it's even parenthetical in your translation, he declared all foods clean. Now, what does Mark mean by that editorial comment that he places right there? Well, I did a lot of reading on uh, that particular phrase, uh, probably eight, ten commentaries, but I have to be honest with you, the bottom line, I think the ESV study Bible's uh, study note captured best and most succinctly what Mark is saying here. And so it's in your notes. I quote it for you. I'll read it for you. Mark notes that Jesus' teaching, in essence, declared all foods clean. The Mosaic ceremonial laws. I'd underline the word ceremonial if you're a note taker. That's to stand in contradistinction to the moral law, like don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal. So once more, the Mosaic ceremonial law. Distinguish between clean and unclean foods, Leviticus 11. Their purpose was to instill an awareness of God's holiness and of the reality of sin as a barrier to fellowship with God. But once defilement of the heart is thoroughly removed and full fellowship with God becomes a reality through the atoning death of Jesus, see Mark 10 and Romans 14 and Hebrews 8 and 9, the ceremonial laws have fulfilled their purpose, and thus they are no longer required. Thus, the point is quite simple. It has always been a matter of the heart. That's why the gospel has nothing to do with your behavior. Not one thing. The gospel is all a matter of the heart. So defilement has its root on the inside, but defilement also reveals its fruit on the outside as well. Mark Devers, is a good friend of mine who pastors the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, right behind the Supreme Court, a wonderful expositor. He actually came to Southeastern this last semester and preached on this very text. And he called verses 21 through 23. I wrote it down immediately because it captured it so well. He called it the fingers of sin. The fingers of sin. In other words, sin's root is in our heart. But sin's root will always bear sin's fruit. And it is an ugly, horrible, deadly crop that it will produce. In verses 21 through 23, Jesus provides not an exhaustive but a selective list of sin's fruit. In fact, he will highlight 13 different characteristics 
of the evil actions that naturally flow from a sinful heart. It's interesting that most of these, not all of them, but most of them are grounded very clearly in the Ten Commandments. I'll just walk you through them quickly as we move to close. First of all, he speaks of evil thoughts. The word has the idea of devising and, and scheming. In other words, you are not just uh, possessed of flippant evil thoughts or passing evil thoughts. No, these evil thoughts begin to take root as you begin to scheme and you begin to devise plans for the harm of others or for the fulfillment of your own sin. Secondly, sexual immorality. It's the Greek word pornaya. We get our word pornography from. It's a general word in the Greek uh, language that means all types of sexual sins contrary to the will of God. So it would include premarital sex. It would include uh, extramarital sex. It would include unnatural sexual behavior. Any type of sexual conduct outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, the Bible calls pornaya. Theft, stealing, taking from another what is not yours. This is the eighth commandment. Murder, taking an innocent life in disobedience to the sixth commandment. Adultery, which is more specific than pornaya. It's the violating of the marriage covenant by engaging in sexual behavior mentally, as Jesus says in Matthew 5:28, or physically with someone you're not married to. This is a breaking of the seventh commandment. Coveting, greed, a desire for more at the expense or exploitation of another. It's the violation of the tenth commandment. Wickedness, which is just bad, evil behavior. One scholar said it is deliberate Malice, premeditated uh, harm that you inflict upon another. Deceit, which means deception or dishonesty. And again, one called it cunning treachery. Sensuality, which is unbridled. Shameless living that is completely lacking in moral discernment or restraint. What was once done privately now marches down Main Street and no one thinks a second thought about it. Envy, interestingly, it's a metaphor, figure of speech from the first century. Literally, it is uh, the phrase, an evil eye, an evil eye. But it was then applied to envy or stinginess or jealousy of another, which is, again, always rooted in unbelief uh, because it believes God is withholding his best from you. And so it's a heart ailment that has its own uh, seeds of destruction built in because an envious person is never satisfied. It's like uh, Mr. Rockefeller who was asked on one occasion, how much money do you really think you need? And his response was, one dollar more. In other words, I'll never have enough. I'll always want more. Slander, literally the word blasphemy, means to defame or speak evil of man or of God. We've come full circle, haven't we? Pride, arrogance, haughtiness. And then finally, foolishness, which the word means senseless, that which is spiritually insensitive. Jesus then concludes the whole section by saying, verse 23, all these evil things come from within. And that is they which defile a person. Again, to quote my friend Mark Dever, there really are only two approaches to religion in this world. I don't care what religion it is. They can all be summarized under two categories. Do, done. Do, done. Do I obtain a right standing before God by what I do? Or do I obtain a right standing before God because of what Jesus has done? 
And tonight, you're in either category. There is not a third option. Either you're standing before God or hoping to stand before God based upon what you can do. Or you're going to stand before God on the basis of what Jesus did for you. The Bible is very clear. It's not what you can do. It's what Christ has done. So why is legalism so horrible? Because legalism, we think better of ourselves than we should. We think better of ourselves than Jesus does. But in salvation, we think of ourselves as Jesus thinks of us. Hopeless, helpless sinners who are in desperate need of a Savior. I love 1 Samuel 16, 7. You all know it very well. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord, he looks on the heart. So a good question for all of us to consider tonight, beginning with me. When God examines my heart, your heart, what does he see? Does he see on the one hand a self-righteous legalist trusting in what I do? Or does he see a humble sinner trusting only in what Jesus has done? The difference really is of eternal significance. Heavenly Father, these are some of those painful verses in all the Bible for me. Because it makes it very clear that a man can look spick and span on the outside. I mean clean as a whistle, morally upright. He doesn't do all the bad stuff, and yet he can die and go to hell because he has a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. A knowledge that he is a hopeless, helpless sinner who can never do enough to be saved. He must rely upon what another has done for him, and that is the perfect atoning work of King Jesus. Lord, the heart is deceptive, as Jeremiah says. Who can know it? And Lord, we're a fool to trust our hearts. Rather, we need to trust your word and trust your son. And Lord, help us to be, as Warren Wiersbe said, constantly in the, in the mindset of critiquing our traditions and always asking when it comes to how we live our lives and how we do church, Lord, are we following your word? Or have we been seduced by the traditions of men? Traditions that at one time may have been good, but traditions that now have taken the place of God's Word, and therefore what was once a good thing has become a God thing, and now it's a bad thing. Lord, again, this is a message for those who come to church on Wednesday nights, Sunday nights, who tithe faithfully and who try to walk morally upright. It is a reminder, Lord that you can go to hell as an adulterer, as a murderer, as a thief. And you can go to hell as a religiously upright man or woman, too. Bottom line, it's not what we do. It's all about what Jesus has done. May we then flee and trust him and him alone, for that alone is the place of safety. We ask and pray this in his name. Amen and amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern 
or supporting us financially at www.scbts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.